0: Okay, thank you, everybody. Welcome to our panel. It's about how the rise of global societies is changing the publishing business. And with me are, in the middle, we have Tobias Holzmüller, General Counsel of GEMA, and Managing Director of the German Society of Private Copying Collections, which is ZPU. ZPU. Yeah, that's ZPU, if you're American. and he also helped build ICE, which is the licensing hub in Berlin. I have Julian Dumont at the end, who's the Director of Development, Phono, and Digital at SSM, and the CEO of the SSM subsidiary UWrites. And right here, Mary Megan Peer, CEO of Peer Music, um, which is in some ways one of the first publishing companies, the first really international publishing companies. And it now has 38 offices in 31 countries. Um, and what we're here to talk about is really an incredible sea change in the publishing business that hasn't been covered that much in the US. Uh, once upon a time, international publishing was very simple. Each society had a local monopoly, except for the US, Brazil, and Turkey. And all you had to know was that S-A-C-E-M was SASEM, G-E-M-A was GEMA, S-G-A-E was Sky and that CSAC was CSAC and CSAC was SISAC, except in French when CSAC was SISAC and SISAC was CSAC. It was actually really easy. And then, about a decade ago, shit got real. Specifically, the EU Directive on Collective Management of Copyright and Related Rights Say that 10 times fast. It established some governance standards for collecting societies, and it essentially ruled that each collecting society would maintain a local monopoly in the offline world radio, television, bars, grills, pubs, concerts but they would all compete with each other in the online world. And this started a lot of competition but also started a chain reaction that started a lot of competition all over the world and i think we're still all adjusting to that um tobias you were involved in this in lobbying for this directive in the first place what was the eu trying to do because it was a very different world back then
1: yeah it was and actually it's quite an interesting story because uh You know, we often complain about regulation like uh, strangling the markets, but but there you have an example of actually quite successful regulation. And um, well, the story behind the story is basically that, you know, streaming came to Europe and there was the same players all over Europe. It's not like national broadcasters like in the old days, it was Spotify in every country. And then they could buy licenses from the label side directly covering the entire territory but they still had to deal with the, like 28 local societies to cover the respective territory. So the EU figured out that probably it's not a good idea to work towards a common digital market if you have to deal with uh, 28 national monopolies. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let you have your monopolies where it makes sense, but let's compete on the, on the digital side. And the, of course there was a risk that instead of having you know 28 territories, you end up with uh, 28 societies doing all over Europe but doing their own repertoire. So you still end up with 28. So they came up with something else and that's what's called on the tag-on system. They said, if you want to issue licenses on a pan-European basis, you need to qualify. Your systems need to have a certain level of, uh, you know, operationability, performance and so on. And only if you qualify, you can issue pan-European licenses. And societies not qualifying for that could tag on to the larger societies and basically piggyback their own repertoire on the, on the repertoire of the larger ones. And this is when this system of licensing hubs was developed. That was purely European in the start, covering European territory, taking European repertoire, and then grew over time because economies of scale kicked in. And Mary and
0: Megan, talk a little about, you know, if you're an American publisher or an American songwriter and Pure Music's much more than that, it's international. But if you were an American publisher or a songwriter, what well, what does this mean to you? Because it seems remote, but it it very much has an effect.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, just in terms of setting setting the stage here, we've got to think about the rights that we're talking about. Uh, if you are an American songwriter or an American publisher, uh, you've got the performing right, and then you've got the others, the mechanical, sync, et cetera, rights. Um, and if you are a writer affiliated with a US PRO, your writer's share of your performing right likely goes through that PRO uh, into... Europe, into all places in the world, and they collect that share of that right. On the other hand, if you have a publisher, uh, they probably collect your mechanical and your sync rights abroad. So what rights we're talking about that you have control over, if you're in a traditional American setup, can vary a little bit. Um, but assuming you are signed with a PRO. Uh, They are probably, unless you've elected otherwise, they are probably controlling your performance rights around the world.
0: And so, you know, this gives everybody options. Julian, how do you, how should people think of those options? You can keep everything, you can sign directly. At what point does that make sense?
3: Well, it makes sense depending what you are doing and in which country or in which region uh, you are performing well. So basically, if most of your reputation are the creators are based in Europe, there is some common sense to try to select uh, one of the existing hubs such as ICE or SSM. Uh, after that, you will have also some uh, really granularity with respect to where you are uh, uh, better performing. Are you good in streaming and in digital, or are you touring a lot? And then you can basically cherry pick with respect to what is your core business, which of the society look the most powerful for you.
0: How do you how do you how would you approach that as an American? Can you sort of? Give us a little more texture, because it it gets complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it all really comes down to the money compared to the effort uh, to have a direct relationship with other collection societies. If you're assigned to a US publisher and you're with a US PRO, your publisher is probably taking care of most of the registrations for you. If you elect to go direct to another PRO, you're going to need to be the one to make sure that that PRO gets all of that data. uh, And then you need to understand the rules well enough to track it. And so it has to be somewhere that is economically important for you. I think of a US writer that I know pretty well who writes a lot for Disneyland um, and uh, has a lot of music used in Disney World Paris. So it makes a lot of sense for him to go directly to Sassam. Um, but if you are an American who you know, tours in Europe once a year throughout the whole region, but not in one particular country, it's probably not going to be worth it for you to directly join a society. I think it's important
1: also for American audience to understand that European societies work slightly differently from the US PROs. Firstly, they also do mechanicals. That's why we don't call them PROs. We call them CMOs, right? So they do both mechanicals and and performing rights. And then in terms of, you know, the assignment of rights, they're more flexible. So you can not only withdraw certain territories, you can also select to only assign a certain means of exploitation to a specific society. So you Talk about means of exploitation. Talk about means of exploitation for one second. So you could do online, for example, okay. with Sasm, and you could do broadcasting or live with the society you're currently attached to, like, for example, the Amer- American societies. So this is much more flexible in terms of you know what you can choose from. It's a much more modular approach, if you want. And at what point, like
0: people who choose to go direct, what kind of results are they seeing? Can you talk about like? You know, obviously the object is to make more money, but can you, like, how soon does that have an effect sometimes?
1: Or it's hard to say. Well, I think it's two things. The most immediate effect is speed, obviously, right? Uh, I mean, you will get your distributions much quicker if you go direct than if you go through an American PRO, because it's just another step. Uh, The second thing is commission. You only have one commission if you go direct with the European Society, and you might pay a second commission that's lower than the usual commission, but still a commission in the US PRO. Um, and then it gets more complicated. It depends where your exploitation is, what um, I mean, what you make your money from—is it broadcasting or live? Then you might get supplementary payment, like in the US PROs, qualifying over time in the in the European PROs, and that is. That depends really on, 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 on what you do, um, but I think it will normally take one year, two years until you really see these monies coming in.
0: And are they, is there a substantial difference in what's collected? Because obviously, no matter what PRO you're in in Europe, you're essentially treated the same per use. It's just the, the your ability to find the, find the money can be different. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, um, tariffs are the same, obviously. So um, live performance, for example, are much better paid in Europe as compared to the US. So you will have the same tariffs, either if you go direct or if you go through a US PRO. But of course, many societies in Europe would have special key account services for their own members, saying, well, we help you track your concerts, we help you clean up the, the set list. I mean, that's what publishers will normally do as well. Uh, in order to, to help you really make sure that all the set lists are included in your, in your first distribution and you don't have to go chase them for the money for, for years or, or months to come. So um, I think these types of services make distribution more speedy and more accurate and that's normally what you only qualify for either if you go through a publisher or you'll be your direct member and qualify for key account services.
2: And I, I think this also speaks to what I mentioned earlier: is you need to know enough about the local territory, the tariffs involved, to track and make sure that you are getting what you need. Um, usually, if you do have a publisher who is local on the ground there, they will know those type of things and they'll make sure that key works are registered in a timely basis. You know, you need to have, know the deadlines for registering works, lots and lots of detail. Um, and so, in many cases, your publisher is going to be doing this locally in every country.
3: I think there is a kind of combination of couples of things obviously commercial terms and what will be the value attached to your work is something key really important but that's not all what everybody is looking for is basically to be confident with how uh, we do manage their rights uh, how transparent we could be how fast we can collect and distribute and these are those kind of added value Uh, We are trying to bring at the general hubs uh, in Europe uh, to basically secure and improve that business.
0: Talk a bit about the the hub concept. The the hub that I think is the biggest and the most important, I think, is ICE. ICE is based in Berlin and it's a cooperation between GEMA, which is the German society, STIM, the Swedish society, and PRS, which is the British society. Talk a bit about how that functions, because it's as complicated as it, as it seems.
1: Inside that, there's a whole other level of complicated. I'm not sure it's so complicated. It's actually it's a, it's a joint venture by three companies that said, well, let's not do it on our own. Let's try to join forces and make the most powerful and strongest hub that you, that you can create. Because we do online licensing. I mean, we started off in Europe. Now we cover like 200 territories worldwide. So basically, that's the the world without the US, China, Japan, Korea, some countries in, in South America and Australia. We gather a lot of repertoire. We process these licenses together, which makes a lot of sense because, you know, streaming, music streaming, processing, that's a scale game. You really need a lot of volume that it makes sense. You have the systems. You can improve the systems. So we put all this together. We also offer complementary services. And um, there you go. I mean, this uh, this these hubs are extreme success stories uh, because they they started off as, as something regional, and you know, I- even if you're a, a U.S. writer attached to to a P.R.O. in in the U.S., you probably don't know that your, license, your, your rights will be licensed outside the U.S. through Either SASM or, or ICE, because uh, we're basically doing the world for, for, for these uh, PROs. so it's amazing how these, how these services grew, and it, it's purely logical because as I said, in terms of economies of scale, you need to have big hubs, otherwise it doesn't make sense. You only duplicate efforts in processing the same stuff for less volume.
3: Yeah, well, what is really interesting is that this success story could Be taken in a complete other way because we did not structure or hub at SSM exactly in the same way than what ICE has done between GEMAS team and PRS. There is no joint venture on our side, it's uh, uh, definitely SSM on his own who have built uh, as first uh, a platform dedicated to the whole uh, uh, online processing, and then how we are doing that afterwards that, that we, we do. Uh, get mandates. Mandate from some options-free publisher, uh, such uh, as Universal Music Publishing, obviously, but Impel, Warner Chappelle at some point. But not only publisher, There are also other sister company, Comca uh, in Korea, uh, ASCAP, Sokan. And basically, uh, I fully agree with Tobias, but there has been a need at first to build a strong system. This is costly, really. So, uh, uh, and uh, and this is thanks to basically all this aggregation of uh, key actors that those hubs can become powerful and be in a position to negotiate, mainly with DSP. Sorry, when you talk of SASEM, SASEM w- w- is not a hub, but
0: it has a scale. It's not organized as a hub, but it has that kind of scale that is, it, it acts similarly in some way. Is is that
3: yeah, fair? We cannot be, we okay. cannot be uh, considered clearly at the hub, even if it's a simplification word to explain what CSM is doing in the same way than uh, than ICE. And what is important, and Tom has mentioned that, is that uh, we cover basically the whole chain on the uh, on the online business. So we go through from the licensing to the processing, distribution, and so on. And I have to say that it's a kind of a also cherry picking solution for uh, most of our uh, partners and members, because you can decide just to go with licensing, or just with processing, or doing both. And that's basically the flexibility we and, are bringing to most of our partners.
0: And ICE works the same. You can sw- choose. You have some choices as to what services you want.
1: Yeah, it's. I think the structure is slightly different, but the, the products offered are the same. We're still working on the, the third column that is copyright services. That's probably something that uh, no one else in the market will be offering at that level, but let's see how, how quickly we get there. Um, but in a way, the systems are comparable. We would obviously say we have the best systems. Zasim has the second oh, best I system. So.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> when, and I wanted to pause.
0: This isn't exactly... This is a, a slightly uh, adjacent to the main topic, but what's interesting is that if you know the history of these organizations, these were um, the European societies were local monopolies for a really long time. And I think that acting as a local monopoly for a really long time arguably incentivizes a certain kind of behavior. and. Sasam and Gema and a lot of the other societies were very able to do what they were doing, but they weren't doing a lot of other things. Is that fair? And now you see real competition. I mean, I don't think in, t- in the year 2000 you might not have been saying, you know, which who has the better sort of data operation because it's like, well, I have Germany, I have France hey, I'm your only choice. And now you have this competition, which I think is really
1: great. I agree. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to work in a purely modern company. I mean, they, they're slow, they're, they're fat, they're lazy sometimes. So I, I think this type Who of company took an airline here? Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah. Sorry. I think it created a lot of you know, energy and uh, things that, that lead to better results. Um, we're not saying we're there yet, but I think this, uh, this type of uh, process has really brought the best uh, out in these companies, and um, I, I think it's, uh, I mean, you in the US, you're, you're already used to have uh, competing PROs in, in your territory, so we took it even a step
3: further in the sense of that we're competing for the world. And there is competition, of course, no doubt about that, but there is also collaboration. Because competition uh, is uh, mainly on the, on the licensing, on how basically a hub compared to another uh, will get its market share growing, sends to the different partner it could sign, and so on. But in the same time, with respect to how this digital business with DSP has been set, and the fact that we are in a fragmented world, meaning that for every single quarter, for example, We do get from the DSP the total uh, list of content exploited where we are each other, we have to claim. We need obviously to collaborate on the execution on one side to manage conflicts and claim contents, make sure that basically the relationship between the DSP and us is as smooth as possible in order to clearly optimize and make that market sustainable for a long term
0: talk a bit about that scale because since i you know you at events like this you see a lot of startups and you know i think i've seen 3 so far who've seen you know what the problem with the societies is we we're going to fix this with blockchain and the way it's going to work is you're going to have a blockchain and it's going to fix it all we never got to the middle part. But <laughs> t- t- tell me a bit, you know, in, in the in the real world where people are actually getting paid, and you have a big responsibility, it's not, you know, a lot of the smaller countries would have a hard time doing that. Talk a bit about the scale, because it's just, it's mind-numbing, it, you know, the the amount of uses, the amount of compositions you have to track. That's probably one for you.
3: Mm. You're <laughs> our, our technician and not so much. That that that's true. That basically we have more and more data to manage, uh, and uh, and this is really exponential. Uh, so what we are trying to do, and this is interesting because we can link that to innovation, blockchain, and so on. We are clearly moving. Uh, to become, in a way, some kind of an innovative company or data company. And for that, what we need is basically to be at the forefront of the innovation to see where there could be some new technology, new tool, new things which will allow us to basically properly identify, match, uh, and set actually an, uh, an accurate database of work which will be used for the future. So, uh, long story short, we need, if we want to stay in that competition and to uh, provide really good added value, we need to re- reinvent ourselves uh, on the way the documentation uh, could be set and could be shared on the way uh, or, uh, or tools could process and accelerate the, pr- the, the processing. There are many, many fields on which we need to be at the forefront of the innovation to better serve our members and our partners due to this exponential growth of data we need to handle uh, in, uh, in uh, this digital field.
1: Maybe two thoughts on, on scale. First is technical, as Julien has described, right? I mean, building a system, running a system basically costs the same if you do low volumes or high volumes. So you need the economies of scale to do it efficiently. Um, and this is not a high margin business, right? It's new new uh, offerings coming into the market. Um, so we're, we're not talking about the margins you could create in a monopolistic market. So this is definitely something where you need scale in order to be commercially successful. But there's also a second part, and that is the licensing side, right? You need to have a substantial amount of repertoire in order to get a good deal with the DSPs. You need to have this muscle, right? And uh, I don't know if you read that uh, the Italian society, CI, in obviously difficult negotiations, I know nothing about, I just read the press, with uh, Meta in, in Italy. And obviously it led to the fact that yesterday they des- Meta decided to take the entire Italian repertoire down from the platform. And we as GEMA in Germany, we've been there before with YouTube, like eight years ago, in a similar situation. So, if there is enough leverage on the side of the platform and you're not powerful enough in terms of repertoire, you're in a weak position bargaining against the platform. The bigger your hub is, the more repertoire that you have, the more difficult the choice will be for the platform to take the repertoire actually down. So it strengthens your bargaining position to join forces and add more repertoire together mary megan
0: how do you how do you see this on the other side because you're thinking about the price you're You know, you're thinking about the revenue that's coming in and who's best positioned to do that. Yeah,
2: for us, it's all about maximizing income for our songwriters. Um, And so as much as it's great to talk about fortifying various European societies, our interest is who can do it at the lowest cost uh, in a fast and transparent manner uh, who we know that we can rely on. Um, And so having these options in competition does allow us to negotiate rates, and in terms of aggregation, a large enough publisher that we've aggregated a decent amount of repertoire and so we can probably demand better rates than some of the smaller publishers do. Um, so we have to use that to our songwriters' advantage. Um, but it really it it's offered a choice to us that we didn't have before. Um, but it also is, you know, it's, it takes some time to make that choice to, to really look at what the options are out there because, con- quite frankly, they're always evolving. I mean, one technology is ahead one year and two years later it isn't. And you So you have to constantly be aware of what's changing in the market and how people are doing their licensing.
0: And, and it's interesting because I, I want to just touch on something she said. You know, this, I mean, you know, I, I joke about it, like this is very abstract stuff. You know, this is like, proverbial underwater chess but the the end result is this is how songwriters get paid and all of these like you know data scalability is not like um the stuff of rock and roll so to say but you know you, you all have a you know you have a a job to be fair to your songwriters to get them the most you can and all of this competition in terms of data in terms of leverage you know, you, I, I think you, you see the results. I mean, sometimes you don't see them as quickly as you might want, but you, you do see the results.
2: Oh, absolutely. And clearly, digital is growing for everyone. And that's, that's part of the solution. But it's also part of the problem, because as digital income grows, digital data grows. And this gets to the processing and scalability questions that we've just addressed.
0: So like, the more money you come across, the more problems you see.
2: <laughs> more lines of data, certainly.
0: Okay, sorry. <laughs> trying to, yeah, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's, it's abstract stuff. We're, we're trying to...
3: Just, I, I think about the um, CIA situation. Uh, that's, sorry, that's the Italian yeah. society. CIA, the Italian society. It's, it's actually the perfect example to demonstrate uh, how the hubs in Europe would become compulsory. Because it's a kind of virtuous circle, uh, this kind of hub. First, Tobias mentioned it really well, uh, by aggregating many different repertoires, you are in a better <coughs> position to negotiate and, uh, and lobby with the, the DSP, and then accordingly to attract a better value in your deal for the, the benefit of the, of the creators. But also those have a us because all those tools we need to get in order to properly process, collect, and distribute are extremely costly, and by aggregating all those different repertoires, thanks to also the lowest commission possible, because we need to serve those uh, those actors. And I just want to flag that, whatever we are talking about, Sasm, Gema, PRS, or Steam, we are a non-profit company. We are absolutely looking to serve as much as possible most of the value for the creator. That's so,
0: important for people
3: to remember. So all of this create this kind of virtuous circle where we can optimize the costs, uh, improve our commercial terms with DSP. The D- how does it work with the DSP? It, 10 years ago, more or less, and the average mm-hmm. revenue share Collection society in Europe were able to negotiate with those DSP for streaming. We were between 10% and 12%. In these 10 years, thanks to uh, uh, regular renewal, we did reach 15%. Only 15 Only 15 <laughs> Well, on the paper,
0: obviously. Is there, Talk about that for a second, because... Before we talk you know there's a no, there's probably 10 panels this week on what that number should be and how to get there. But how much does that increase in rates, at least as a percentage, come to this kind of model? because you do see it um, you know you see it happening in different countries with different kinds of regulations. How important is, is that is this system to getting that percentage higher?
3: I'm not sure I got your question. So,
0: so like, in the U.S., you know, these some of these rates are set by the CRB. The percentage is going higher. In countries like um, Japan, Canada, you see it getting higher. I think slower. How important is this sort of hub system and this leverage to getting that percentage higher? Because you see different forces at work. It's hard to sort of separate them out. I have a hard time saying, you know, well, this went up. Why? And, you know, I, I have five answers.
1: I, I can't even rank them. I think it, it's tremendously important because uh, maybe Mary Megan has a better insight in this because she can compare, like, her own figures from the U.S. with Europe. But uh, we, we know that the uh, European revenues from streaming are significantly higher. We, we, it might be... In both cases, 15%. But then the basis you use uh, for calculating this 15% are much more favorable in Europe as compared to the U.S. So de facto, 15% in the U.S. is less than the 15% we get in Europe. Why is that? That was think, my next question. Yeah, because, because you're using the metric system. Because we're less uh, we're less regulated. I mean, we 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 came out of a system where tariffs in Europe were heavily regulated. You had to go to the, you know, to the cultural office, in order to get your tariffs approved, you had to publish them, they had to go through a proceeding of dispute resolution every time, and now we're in a deregulated system where we can more or less uh, negotiate our, our licenses, the limits to it, sometimes it goes to arbitration, but we operate in a much freer market as compared to 15 years ago. It's really interesting cuz
0: we often, you know, by often I mean all the time to the point where it's a little much, talk about you know we the most Americans consider Europe to be a very regulated market. The US has freedom, you know, whatever. And uh, nobody comes to copyright. It's
1: certainly the other way around.
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting because you know in the US we still essentially have government price setting. I mean by another name, but you know the, the government of all the things it could set the price for we have chosen songs which is uh quirky but you know you you do see when you have a free market you you get more of the value that you it, i don't mean deserve in the moral sense but you know when you leave it to a market you do tend to get what you you are worth i'm sorry i didn't mean to
2: no i mean absolutely the crb process is arcane uh, and does not serve the interests of writers and publishers very well. And actually, it's interesting, just in the most recent CRB proceedings is the first time they've taken into consideration what international rates have been set. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a very important for us and in, in the US for our rates that European rates have been increasing. And the other thing I would say is just the value for the people who are negotiating of having the data I mean, we've talked so much about have what the systems you need to have that data, but to be able to dissect it and ask questions so that when you're negotiating rates, you really understand what's going to move the needle compared to what sounds good but actually isn't going to get you to a higher price.
0: It's interesting because you have competition, but you also have competition of a certain form. Like there's 28, I guess 27 now member states in the, in the EU and you have now sort of one super hub you know three three of the biggest societies, and Sasam so has emerged as not quite a hub, but certainly it's a society like any other society, but much much bigger and much, much more important. It, it was also the first songwriters and publishers collecting society. so there is I don't want to say it's a two way competition, but there are certainly. Countries where the local monopoly is the local monopoly, they're not equipped to compete online in the same way because they don't have the scale. You know, if you're the Romanian society, the Polish society, the Czechoslovak, the Czechian society, how do you, you know, do you check. scale
1: up? Sorry. I think there's a Czech.
0: Czech. Sorry. Do you do, do you scale up? Do you, or, or is it better for them because they can join? You know, are they being out-competed, or are they being helped, or both?
2: I mean, I think from a songwriter perspective, having every small society develop their own software to deal with this massive amount of data is absolutely insane. Uh, so for, I think we're better off served if we can share technology development. We don't want every society to have a massive tech budget of their own.
3: And all of this has not been done in a day. So basically, it's more than, it's close to uh, 20 years now that uh, this regulation happened, and uh, and the fact that few big companies decided from scratch to jump into that new world of multi-territorial deal, start to invest in human resources, experts in licensing and in negotiations, start to develop their own tools. I mean, it takes time. So today, for a small company, a small society, uh, to decide now to jump into that game it's a it's a really big question and be cool to take I think it, it is still important to have
1: competition right also for it's for publishers it's important for other societies important so as much as I wanted to see ice outcompete SASEM the, the I still understand that it's important for the market to have choices, right? Uh, because that's the situation we had 20 years ago, where you didn't have choices, and we we saw what this did to the market. So to have um, options to to choose from, also modu- modules you could you could choose to buy or do on your own. I think that's that's the future. Um, I think online processing in particular is the. The most scalable business and the one that will most depend on having high volumes in order to, to be efficient. Um, maybe there are other parts of, of, of the service that, that can be better done uh, also by individual players. But um, if you look at music on demand streaming as it is today, uh, we think it's a, it will be a low margin, high volume business in the future.
3: But just. I think that today, even a few years ago, the question about how uh, we do manage our negotiation and licensing you know, in the licensing uh, uh, digital uh, could have been asked by uh, some people who uh, wanted to decide if they were willing to go through uh, ICE or through FSM, and etc. I believe that today, more or less, those commercial conditions are Established, and the difference is not necessarily massive. So all the competition, from my point of view, will be done on the added value service, the tools we will provide to each one, the transparency we will be able to provide, and mainly, for example, the way we can distribute as fast as possible. A few years ago, more or less for some uh, a quarter of exploitation in the streaming world it took at least between six and nine months to properly distribute those, those money to the creators. Today, at least at SM, same, but I'm pretty sure that uh, on, uh, on ice it might be around the same, but we are able for few DSP to distribute three months after the exploitation, which means that basically all the streaming which happened in this Q1 2023 right now will be distributed in July. And when you look at what are the other time of uh, distribution for all the other small companies, yeah, you multiply that by two or three at least. So those kind of criteria might become quite key in the, uh, the decision of the partner, the creator, the publisher to choose one hub compared to another.
1: And we think that you know, speed and transparency are equally important as as high revenues because it adds to, you know, trust in the system. Uh, You might have a new generation of people coming up that that are used to having, you know, the information at their fingertips all of the time, so they're not as prepared to wait for for eight, nine, ten months for the money to come in as before. Um, We also know that, you know, all these new companies, you refer to like uh, opening up every week, uh, trying to disrupt the music industry, the slower you are and the less transparent, the more easy we'll make it for them to come into the market. So in a way, it's our own obligation to to prepare ourselves. So um, that's why we think that uh, the quality of data, transparency, and speed of distribution might not matter for everyone, but it helps adding trust to the system and defend ourselves against disruption from outside. What what do you look for? I mean, obviously money, you know, revenue is the most important, or I I think, but
0: how important is speed on the publishing side?
2: It's fairly important. I would say, number one, we're looking for uh, the revenues that we're generating um, and obviously a low rate in terms of what the collection society is taking from those. Um, But then getting data in a way that we can actually process it to make it, uh, transparent to our songwriters is highly important, and then speed as well. Um, we don't want the money sitting there. We know that a lot of times, uh, you know, talking directly about digital, there's large advances paid. So it's sitting with the societies even before they've necessarily received the data for it. So it's pretty important for us once they get that data for us to get some of that money.
0: How, what does the future of this kind of competition look like? Let's start out with saying, you know, there are a few places in which you're not competing. Do those barriers fall? I don't think that'll happen in the US, because we sort of have our own system established here. And it's changing You know, with the addition of GMR, um, global music rights. And Canada, you know, could, could Canada become competitive? Could some of these other countries become competitive? Because to stay outside this system, you are duplicating technology.
1: You are spending money. Yeah, interesting question. Um, I think there might be the need – no, let's say the other way around. The more complicated and the more distinct your own national system is, the the more difficult it will be to become a competitor globally. That's why I think it's very difficult for the US societies to go beyond their own territory, because they're used to a system that is unique and uh, that is distinctly different from what we have in the rest of the I world. I think they're constrained in
0: terms of value, add- even coming up with value-added services, right? Like, you you know, collecting mechanicals is something that they, I think ASCAP and BMI can't, I, I'm looking to see if anyone knows. I think it's something they cannot do as per their consent decrees, but you might.
2: ASCAP, that's true. BMI okay. is slightly different, right. and they technically can, but they have never chosen to. But yes, it's hugely different if you can't touch mechanicals to get into this kind of business. Yeah.
0: Right, but then there's other countries too. I mean, do you think you'll see more join? I mean, it does the data gets more and more.
2: Yeah, I think it really depends on why the country is an outlier um, in a place like Japan or Korea or Argentina. They're an outlier because the government has granted them a monopoly over things that include digital rights. Um, so for that to fall, they'd really have to break down the monopoly system, and that's pretty hard. If it's other countries where, like the U.S. and Canada, they've developed over time a certain unique perspective, it's it's more likely that systems could come in, systems could be shared, even if there's still, say, a separation between a performing and mechanical digital right.
0: What about Africa? There's, you have a booming African music business in terms of, talent that's making an international impact. You have an expanding, not quite as quickly, business in terms of subscriptions there, other models in terms of ad-driven streaming. At the same time, you have a system where some countries generate a fair bit of income. Some generate surprisingly little, given the size of the economies. Can that change as well?
1: Africa is a huge topic for us. Um, we think that the hubs that we see in Europe already cover a large portion of, of the African territory in, in, in some deals. Uh, depends a bit on the on the specific DSP. Is that the way to go for the future, or will there be a need for an African licensing hub? I think it depends very much on. There sort of is a
0: Capasso. I don't know if that counts.
3: Mm-hmm. It, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we can consider Capasso as a pure hub as it is Fair in enough. Europe, but at least that's true that for Africa markets it's just huge. We know that it's coming, and uh, uh, the reality is that I think that due to the lack of uh, several CMOs or PROs in every single country of Africa, as you put aside a Capasso, Samro in South Africa. Um, there is massively a need of uh, education with respect to all those authorized copyright whatsoever could exist. So uh, there are plenty of talents, uh, a bedroom producer, uh, a lot of things uh, which are coming from uh, Africa with a lot of different genre which work well uh, and are well exported. Uh, but basically this is where we are missing a, a key part of our business which is basically uh, the documentation how the works could be registered, everything. So there is many, many different ways to address Africa that remain key for SESEM as well. Uh, But this is not just a question to simply come and set the rule or the principle which have been established in Europe. There are many other stuff to embrace before we can make this business more
1: I mean, there are currently a lot of Ameri- uh, African artists, when they get successful, they register with the European society, yeah. so they uh, can make use of this network for them. Like, Nigeria is huge at the moment, so a lot of them go to
3: PRS. Um, other parts of Africa is more Sasem. so... It's question of language, basically. You yes. Half of the Africa were uh, French-speaking native French-speaking, so they are obviously coming to SASEM and all the uh, uh, English-speaking, uh, Country are more looking to go to uh, to a PRS, uh,
1: ICE, or. Like that. But you know this might change. I mean, there, there, there certainly is a need for uh, to work more on the African market. If we can help on the licensing side on the processing side, that definitely makes sense. I don't think duplicating efforts there makes a lot of sense. But in terms of infrastructure, local infrastructure, hiring, uh, signing artists, finding artists, uh, like registering works. I think a lot can be done on, uh, on the African
3: continent. But Africa, yeah. is, not, oh, sorry. No, Africa is not just the, the only priority when we talk about territorial scope or whatever. Middle East is absolutely key as well. And one of the key issues in the Middle East is that basically there is almost no collection society at all. So this is also some kind of field there where, where we need to basically investigate. And, just
0: to be clear, because of the subject that I've, that I've looked into a bit as a reporter, you know, there are countries that are signatories to the Berne Conventions. they have an obligation. You know, composers have a right to be paid for the public performance of their works, but they don't have a society that's doing it. So there is an obligation to pay people, but there's no mechanism to do it. So somebody has to fix that at some point
3: interesting yeah absolutely. and this is where european hub i think we should change that european only hub but just say hub <laughs> short uh yeah we have something to do on that
0: let's talk a bit go back to everyone for one question about the future and then i'll open it up for some questions i'll start with you if you don't mind what would you what what would you like to see in the future in terms of this competition, and what do you um, worry about?
2: Um, I think in terms of the competition, uh, we can only have so many competitors while still making it e- equally a valid proposition for all of them. Um, so I'd want to see similar to what we have now in terms of a couple, maybe three hubs that are competing within Europe uh, to do this. I I don't wanna see every collection society trying to play this game themselves because it's not gonna be uh, beneficial for them, beneficial for writers, beneficial for anyone's income. Um, and I guess my concern right now is that there are still um, a lot of societies that are trying to do this themselves, or maybe taking some pieces of technology uh, from other territories, from other systems, um, but are still really trying to play the game on a very individual level. And time and time again, we've seen that when they do reach out and when they are able to share data, share backend systems, that is what raises the bar for everyone.
1: I mean, as I said, competition is great. I think um, it, it, it uh, created a lot of energy. Uh, we, we need to keep doing this because um, you know, it, it's been a success story so far. But um, we know that there is competition outside the system out there. And uh, we have to become better in order to compete against uh, other players. So coming the t- talk about that a bit, competition outside the system. Well, you have a lot of technology companies you know, pouring into music often they don't know nothing about music, but they think this is the, like, the next market to disrupt. We've done financial industries before, we've done travel before, now we go into music, seems to be an uh, you know, easy target because it's so complicated, it's so complex, so many old systems, it's all this talk about black box money and, and, and slow distributions. So it's very sexy at the moment to, to go into music, to disrupt music by tech. and. I feel like tax disrupted this enough, but uh, it's just me. <laughs> That's your know. personal view. <laughs> no, I mean we
0: we there, there was a couple, there was a whole decade there where we things felt pretty disrupted.
1: Absolutely, but 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 and the game is not over yet. I think no. it's it's uh, something we need to talk about in the in the years to come as well. I think technology can help to overcome a lot of problems, but it also threatens you know the economic structures we have. So we feel like we're in this game together in the music industry to make the music industry more efficient, better. Faster, and then uh, we will all have a chance to survive technological disruption.
3: Me, I think that despite, despite the fact that there is a competition, obviously, uh, there is a, an absolutely need to uh, readdress the value we are getting from all this uh, streaming activity. Uh, so, this is the battle we need to embrace. Because, just to give you some figures today, uh, more or less, if someone wants to have a, a minimum salary with respect to streaming, which is about 1,500 uh, euro per month, which is quite teeny, He need to generate at least a million streams every single month. So we have a clear issue on, uh, on this, uh, this streaming value, and streaming, as everybody knows here, represents a significant portion of what is generated from the, the music business so yeah despite this competition where we're all respectively trying to attract much more people thanks to all the negotiation we're making uh the added value services we're providing there is this common goal we need to uh, to go together and after that uh on uh, on the processing and uh, on how we administer all of this they are still uh, field for improvement. So uh, that would be, I guess, the uh, the next challenge, to uh, make that process as smooth as possible on a mid-term basis. Let's open it up for some questions. Um, there's a
0: microphone there. Um, come up, say hi, introduce yourself.
3: Hello. Um, my name's Chris Cook. Uh, I work for a company called CMU in the UK. I was interested in, you said that one of the ways you see competes CMOs PRAs, whatever we're calling them, licensing hubs, competing with transparency. And that's something I've spent the last 18 months working on in the UK, is around the conversation around transparency in the streaming business, or more lack of transparency. I just wanted to get a bit more specific. What, what kind of transparency? What things do you see you needing to be transparent about and to whom in order to compete?
1: Obviously, you need to be transparent towards the people that give you the rights and expect you to make money from it. Um, if we looked at classic on demand streaming, I think we already have a fairly transparent market. Um,
2: I would say the writers don't agree with you
1: well hold on just let's <laughs> to be to set some
0: boundaries around this there's a number of stages number of transactions in that market where there's a number of steps in that market so the first step is you know what the um DSPs are paying, and how they're sort of taking money out of the pool, if you will, right? And then that money goes to the societies, and the societies account to writers and publishers, and the publishers account to the writers. So there's a few di- when you're talking about transparencies, there are a few different stages where things can be more transparent or less transparent. So I think it's important to realize that. What we're talking about here is the willing let's define transparency here is the willingness to share information that you have downstream because you obviously you can share the information you get, you can't share the information you can't get. So let's just start out with that if that's okay, because upstream from them is a whole other panel, I guess. I I d I don't know how else to say
1: it. Yeah. I wasn't quite finished actually because I was uh, going to say that the, the I see more problems in UGC and social media uses where transparency is much lower as compared to classic music on demand when everyone is so focused on Spotify and how much you get out of your stream and how many streams will there be in your distribution but uh, I mean, things have improved greatly there. We have a, a matching rate at, at an automated matching rate at ICE that is approaching 95 percent, so less and less money goes into the black box. Most, most monies get distributed, distributed automatically, matched automatically. So this is actually a level of transparency that is much higher than what we have experienced in other markets in the, in the past. But then you have like, new services coming up, like TikTok, where there is zero transparency bad deals, bad structure. You have uh, new platforms coming that generate different levels of, of, uh, of revenue. So I worry more about these new forms of exploitation. Um, I'm not saying we have all fixed in Web 2, but uh, I think Web 3 is just around the corner and uh, I, I think we have to worry much more about these markets.
3: And just to give you some concrete example, a few years ago, when we were about to distribute some streaming businesses to our creators or our partner, they were just a line. Hey, you, you earned that money from uh, streaming. No even clue about which DSP we were talking about, what type of service we were referring to. Should it be the free tier, single subscription, family whatsoever? This is where basically we did improve the granularity of data we are able to provide. So for the, the, the members at the distribution time, we are really granular. Every single creator could get a view about what he is earning on each DSP, but also on each type of service. Next step will be each country or whatsoever. Uh, and same for the partner, because when you have to represent some rights from some, uh, some publisher and partner out like you need to basically provide them with business intelligence tool, ability for them to predict and to track what will be the next distribution and so on and this is where we are doing transparency. A few years ago, you were just trying to knock at the door of a society, say, "Hey, when I will get my money from that country or whatsoever, here we can predict that and we can give some good timelines and so on. And to come back to Tobias point afterwards on, uh, on UGC in general or whatever we're talking about, TikTok, Twitch, uh, YouTube. Well, YouTube, it's a bit uh, different, but uh, and the other. Yes, there is a big issue, but uh, it's another question of transparency is the ability for the collection society, the hub whatsoever, to be in a uh, fair position to deal with those company because they do not provide us with the accurate data we need to establish the proper business model. When you are, and this is a specificity of uh, the also right uh, in Europe, uh, the principle is proportionality. We need to establish some ref share. But when you have an actor who is absolutely not willing to provide you uh, with this net turnover per country, region, or so on, how the hell could you implement your model? So this trans- lack of transparency, we need to fight against.
0: And I just want to repeat what, sort of what I said before. I think that there are different problems with transparency, but it's important to realize that you, you, can't, share, you, have, you, you can't share the information you don't have. You know, you're getting a check from TikTok that might say, music stuff.
1: <laughs> All right, well. Sorry, go ahead. No worries. Um, Great panel, by the way. Super, super interesting. Uh, My name's Henry. Um, I've worked with music metadata for years, um, working with Amy Thompson at the moment, building out a system for catalogue management for artists. Um, Without setting off a kind of GRD alarm somewhere in the house, do you think we're at the beginning of a wave of transparency, (coughs) particularly around, you know, ISRC, ISWC matching, MLC, you know, PRS's new initiative, or do you think it's kind of... Some CMOs see it that their moat, you know, their kind of data moat, is being eroded and perhaps represents an existential crisis for them. That's a tricky one. That's a big one, yeah. Uh, I think both. I think we, we need to see a wave of transparency it, it doesn't work otherwise. And, and you see a lot of initiatives that go in this direction, right? Uh, connecting ISRCs, ISWCs, being more transparent on- uh, So explain um, what those are. Oh yeah, those sure are identifiers that the industry uses in order to uniquely identify a sound recording. That would be the ISRC. And a musical work, a composition, which could be attributed an ISWC code. There's going to be a quiz on the abbreviations yeah. later. <laughs> It's like the Southern European Collecting Society. <laughs> and um, to bring these two together is obviously difficult because only the sound recording is a product, you know, where you have a file. And uh, a musical work is something in the air. It, it has to incorporate it into a, be incorporated into a file. And this is where normally problems start. Uh, but you're, you're the metadata expert, so probably you should explain that. Um, this is where the problems start, to, to get these two together and to, to get a, a unique identifier for the, for the composition. It's also
0: interesting because data, there are ways in which this identification data works better if it's shared. There's also ways in which, if you share everything always, the services can say, you know, someone pitched me at a company yesterday, you know, everything's open. But if everything's open, YouTube or TikTok could say, we're going to pay you directly disintermediate the collecting society you'll get the same thing you get now plus plus 15 percent or so and you'll get the same thing the year after that and the year after that and the year after that and probably in 100 years you'll still get the same thing because now no one's negotiating on your behalf so I think that we we live in a world where openness has become sort of a you know an ideal we worship but there's openness and there's openness you know you, you want to have Transparency for business fairness is a good thing. Transparency for giving away the um, the Colonel's Eleven secret herbs and spices is not a good thing. That's a very American reference. I apologize, but you know you you have to maintain some level of um, operational
1: advantage. How much is is very complicated. Um, yeah, and you need data governance, right? Because it's so easy to ingest. You know tainted data into the system and, and draw economic uh, benefits from this. We've seen this before, uh, that, that people claim works they don't own because they found some way into the system to, to make things their own. And that's, a, again, that's a problem, you know. YouTube
0: lets you claim your own, you know, through a middleman, if you're trusted, they do have some some precautionary measures, but they let you claim your compositions. This is seen as the ideal of openness. But you have a lot of people claiming a lot of stuff that's not theirs, or they're claiming 100% of something that they have 2% of. And, and you get this thing where everything's matched, everyone's getting paid. Oh, wait, did we actually pay the right person? Ah, it's open. Well, you know, it's like you, it's, that's a tough conversation, because we have to strive for openness without having this worship of it that doesn't really take us where we want to go. Um, I think that's all the time we have. In the unlikely event that you're not sick of me, I'll be doing a panel on AI in a half an hour because this was sort of, you know, I wanted to do something really complicated. I wanted to thank all my panelists. I think you did a great job of explaining stuff that is complicated, and I appreciate your time. This is a tricky subject, but I think it's something people need to know about, and I thank you.